Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. My name's Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here. Thank you for braving the rain and coming out today. I hope you're able to make use of our new uh, kayak parking section back over there. That was terrible. Thank you for laughing at it. I appreciate it. A few of you. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, though. Uh, Mother's Day is a good thing. because Mother's Day, mothers, they, they teach us a lot, don't they? Mothers, they, they, they teach us a whole bunch of different lessons. They are the reason why we are who we are. And they teach us in a lot of different ways. But at least one of the primary ways that my mom taught me was through warnings. Seems like I got warned all the time. I have no idea why. Um, but, but like when I was a little kid, and still to this day, I can remember my mom saying to me, H's, Luke. Anytime that she think I was getting a little too big for my britches, she'd say H's because my mom drilled it into my head that she had three things that she wanted me to become, and they all started with the letter H. Honesty, holiness, and humility. So anytime my head got a little too big, and still to this day, she'll say H's, Luke. So in the spirit of Mother's Day, can I start today with a warning? Self-promotion is a dangerous thing. Self-promotion is a dangerous thing. Thing. For example, a long time ago, there was a man by the name of Salmon P. Chase, and he was a brilliant politician back in the 1800s, but he was bitter rivals with his arch nemesis, a guy by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And when Lincoln became president, despite their differences, Lincoln actually appointed Salmon P. Chase to be his treasury secretary. Well, unmoved by this gesture, Salmon P. Chase seized that opportunity to exalt himself, and he actually put his own picture on the very first dollar bills that the United States ever printed. And actually, he, 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 wanted to, he was so sure of himself, in fact, that Lincoln's picture ended up on the penny, and Salmon P. Chase's picture was put on the $10,000 bill because Salmon P. Chase wanted to be the one who is remembered as the great one. When's the last time you saw a $10,000 bill? <laughs> There's pennies everywhere though, right? Yeah, self-promotion is a dangerous thing. In more recent years, there was an oil mogul by the name of Dick Bass, and he was the person who set the record for being the oldest guy ever to climb Mount Everest, and he was actually the first person ever to climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents. Now, these are incredible achievements, and Dick Bass made sure that everybody knew it. At one time, he was on a plane ride, and Dick Bass spent the entire flight telling stories and bragging of his great adventures to the nice man who was sitting next to him, and as the plane finally landed, Bass turned and said to the man, you know, after all this time, I don't think I've introduced myself. Hi, my name is Dick Bass. Then the man shook his hand and responded, hi, I'm Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Self-promotion is a dangerous thing. It can leave you making a fool of yourself. But you know, the greatest danger of self-promotion actually runs much, much deeper than that. Because you might remember, but self-promotion was actually at the heart of the very first sin do you remember what the serpent said to Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter three? He said, you can be like God. Now, I don't know your heart this morning, but I know mine. And if you're anything like me, then deep down inside of you, there perhaps still lurks this desire to be great to be praised, to be glorified. And, and maybe at a softer level, we want to be wanted and we want to be admired and seen and valued. And, and those things aren't inherently bad, but as we seek our affirmation in those things and we find our worth in the opinions of the people around us rather than in God's opinion of us, we end up competing with the glory that is only rightfully belonging to God. Self-promotion is a dangerous thing. 
But you know, we're not the first ones to deal with this dangerous thing called self-promotion. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and let me set the scene for you. In John chapter 13, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and it is Thursday night. Tomorrow morning, on Friday morning, Jesus will be crucified. But tonight is Thursday night, and we are in an upper room in Jerusalem, and the disciples have been arguing. And now John doesn't tell us this, but Luke does in his gospel account. He tells us that the disciples are actually arguing about which one of them is the greatest in Jesus's kingdom. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but it's not hard to imagine, is it, that perhaps Peter was the one to start this whole argument? He's kind of well known for sticking his foot in his mouth, talking before he thinks. And you can just imagine Peter saying, now, now, boys, all right, you just give it up, lay it to rest right here. I think it's, we can all agree, can't we, that I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, who walked on water? Yep, yep, that was me. Who made the good confession? Yep, you're right, that, that was me again. I, I, I think you better just give it up. I, I will accept the nomination. Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is gonna be king. I'll be vice king. I'm the greatest. You can just lay it all down. And then we can imagine maybe James and John piping in saying, what in the world, Peter? Be quiet. No way, no way, no way, no way. You remember, yeah, sure, you walked on water, Peter, but what does your name mean, Peter? Yeah, it means rock. You sank like a rock, buddy. No chance. Oh, yeah, and sure, Peter, you made the good confession, but what did Jesus say to you like five minutes after that? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. He called you Satan, Peter. There's no way you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, us, James and John, the sons of thunder, we're gonna sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. We are the greatest. And then we can imagine maybe Andrew chiming in, chiming in saying, boys, 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 wow, the ego's in this room. Take it easy. We know that Jesus values humility, and I am obviously the most humble one among us. I will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And on and on and on around the table, they go arguing about who's the greatest. And out of their corner of their eye, they can see it. Over there at the far end of the room, they're sitting on the floor, a pitcher of water and a basin and a towel. And they know what it's there for, to wash feet. Because back in those days, the roads were all dirt. And so when it was dry, the roads would be dusty. When it was wet, the roads would be muddy. And people walked everywhere they went in open-toed shoes. And they didn't have those great uh, garbage and sewage disposal systems like we do. So you can imagine that getting from place to place could have been a messy affair. And by the time you got to the house, you were desperately in need of a good foot washing. And this was a fairly unpleasant job. And so the job of washing the feet of the people who would come into the house belonged to the lowest servant in the house. And yet here at the Last Supper, there's no servant on duty. We don't know where he is. Maybe he's having a Passover meal with his family. But we do know that none of the disciples volunteered for the job. They can see it over there in the corner of the room, the basin and the towel. And they're all thinking, uh-uh. No way, not me. I'm not low man on the totem pole. I'm nobody's servant. Somebody else can do that. So perhaps it's right then. When they walk into the room to be seated, there's nobody there to wash their feet. Maybe that's when the argument starts. You might remember that in Jewish culture, the seating chart at a meal was a hugely important thing because where you sat was a reflection of how much honor and respect you had. So the seating chart was arranged in terms of highest honor to lowest honor. And so when you want to go eat, you want to have a seat of honor to display that you are a worthy and respectable human being. And now at, at, at the Last Supper, you've probably seen pictures of what the Last Supper looked like from like Da Vinci's painting, right? Maybe you've seen this picture. I actually, somebody sent this to me a while ago, the COVID version of the Last Supper. Yeah, <laughs> not quite the same, is it? 
Actually, those scholars agree that most of the time they would not have eaten at a long table like this, that for the Passover meal, the tables would be arranged in what's called a tridinium, which is kind of a three-sided set of tables. And we can imagine if there's 13 guys eating this meal, most people agree there'd be five guys on each side. And then at the head table, there'd be three guys seated right here. And the position of highest honor at the table was this one, right up top, right in the middle. So Jesus was most likely sitting right here. And then out from that position, as you work your way down the ladder, you go lower and lower and lower in terms of honor that each seat was worth. So you can imagine. These guys come into the room. It's time to sit at the table. That would produce some tension. Who gets to sit close to Jesus in the place of honor? Who's getting stuck in the cheap seats? And they're probably a little bit of a jockeying for position, but eventually they settle in to eat. And for the Passover meal, they would have used a low table like this, down pretty close to the ground. And actually, to eat this meal, they all would have reclined, leaning on their left arms and then eating with their right arm like this. So keep that in mind then as we read these verses. John chapter 13, look at what verse 21 says. It says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's a way to kill the mood at dinner. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. I mean, can you imagine the shock of the disciples? They know there's people after Jesus, but one of us, one of us is gonna betray you, really? Now look very closely at what happens, verses 23 through 26. It says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself, he's the one writing this, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So it says that John leaned back against Jesus. What we can infer then is if Jesus is at the position of highest honor, John is most likely right here, leaning on his left arm. And when Peter motions to ask Jesus who's gonna betray him, John leans back. Some translations say leans back on Jesus's breast to ask him the question. So John is right here at the position of third highest honor. Peter's mostly likely down in the cheap seats if he has to motion to John to get him to ask the question. <laughs> Now pay close attention. Look at what happens. Verses 26 through 30. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, this text is scary to me because Judas had been so close to Jesus for three years, and yet somehow Satan got enough of a grip on Jesus' heart that he was able to pry him away from the Lord. And just how do you think Satan got a hold of Judas's heart? Well, we don't know 100%, but I bet at least part of it was due to self-promotion because look where Judas is. It says that Jesus, at the position of highest honor, dips the bread, we know John is right here, and hands it to Judas. That means that most likely Judas is right here at the position of second highest honor in the room next to only Jesus himself. This blows my mind. That's what the, this is what that means. Judas is the one who won the argument about which of the disciples is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps this story of Judas's betrayal is a warning to us that just maybe the harder you try to climb the ladder, the closer you get to betraying the Lord. 
And, and this is sobering and, and, and frightening for us because Judas had been there all along. He, he'd been with Jesus. He'd seen it all. We're gonna see in just a minute. Jesus had washed Judas's feet at this point. He had won. He, he had won the argument. He was the greatest. Everybody agreed. And yet it wasn't enough. And you probably know this by now, that when you play the world's status games of self-promotion, it will never be enough. And so Judas, maybe he's thinking that the ministry of Jesus wasn't all he thought it, would crack, it was cracked up to be. It wasn't the fast track to fame and recognition and wealth and influence that he thought it was gonna be. So in an effort at least partially born of self-promotion, Judas betrays the son of God. And he walks out of the house that night with clean feet and a dirty heart. Self-promotion is a dangerous thing. Because, you know, I, I don't think Judas probably originally set out to betray Jesus. He was a normal disciple, one of the gang. He was there for the, the teaching and the miracles, and he was praying and asking questions and doing ministry alongside the others. It, it, John tells us that Jesus actually put Judas in charge of the money box. The difference was, though, we know that John's also told us that Judas was skimming off the top. He was stealing from the money box, and so perhaps that's a clue that Judas was doing some other things. Maybe he was even just doing the right things in the wrong way, giving to the poor and helping the sick and serving those in need and praying and asking good religious questions, not because he had a heart of devotion to God, but because he liked the pats on the back. And maybe, just maybe, little by little, as he worked his way up the ladder, the devil got a foothold in his heart that grew bigger and bigger and bigger until his moment of betrayal. But before we throw too many stones at Judas this morning, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves because it's really natural for us to promote ourselves, isn't it? We don't have to try that hard. It's the way of the world. And the world around you is gonna try to get you to promote yourself and to play its status games even subconsciously. We think that if, if we could just move up a couple spots, if you could just have clothes that are more stylish, you get a little better job, get a little bigger house, a little bigger car. If, if, you, if your kids are successful, if, if you get the job that you want, if you get that promotion, if your boss notices your work, maybe then you'll get to be on the inner circle. You'll get to be one of the people that they trust and your opinion will be valued. If those people, if those people just get to be your friends, then you'll kind of level up a little bit. And then, then if you get the right contacts, if you network the right way, then you'll arrive. People will value you, respect you, admire you. Then you'll be great. But maybe this story is a warning that the harder we try to climb the ladder, the closer we get to betraying the Lord. Self-promotion is a dangerous thing, and here's why. Self-promotion is a dangerous thing because servanthood is the heart of our king. Servanthood is the heart of our king. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus kind of cracks the door on his personality a little bit. He lets us know what the core of his being is. And he says this, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble in heart. Now that's not all that countercultural or remarkable to us because we're living in a society where it's somewhat respectable, even admirable to be a little bit self-deprecating, you know, have, have some humility, you know, yeah, it was a good team win or no, I'm not a hero, that kind of thing, you know? But back in those days, humility was not considered a virtue. In fact, in the Roman world, people were ruthlessly ranked based on their order of honor and status. A parallel I could think of is kind of how airlines treat us, right? Airlines have a very distinct food chain, don't they? And at the very top, you got the gold members. 
And they, they got their own special lounge in the airport. I've never been in there, but I've always wanted to go in there. It's like this super mystical secret place, you know? And if you got enough miles and money, you get to get in there. You're the gold member. And if you don't have enough miles and money, that's okay. You could still splurge on a first class ticket. It's the next, next best thing. You get to board first. You get cushy seats, lots of leg room. It's a good deal. And then, you know, if you don't want to be that, that's okay. You can still be kind of high up. You get to board in group B. You still get to go before some other people. There's plenty of room in the overhead compartments for your luggage. And then on and on and on down the line until there's me. And I'm stuck sitting in the middle seat in the back by the bathroom, holding my bag on my leg, reading a Sky Mall. You know, and the stewardess tells me I got to pay five bucks for a bag of peanuts. And these guys up here are eating warm cookies, drinking Coke out of glass glasses on their nice little monogrammed napkins, right? The very distinct food chain. And that's the way of the world. That's the way the Roman society was organized too. At the very top of the ladder, you got Caesar, the emperor. And then after that, you got some senators and you got some nobles and you got some merchants and then you got the bona fide Roman citizens and then you got people who are freedmen. You know, they're just peasants, but they're not slaves. And then at the very, very bottom of the rung of the social ladder, you got the slaves. And self-promotion was encouraged because you want to keep climbing the ladder. And so uh, Roman men would wear a series of increasingly elaborate and colorful togas to let everybody know where they fell on the ladder, to let them know that I'm a person worthy of respect and glory and honor. In fact, self-promotion was encouraged in that society. The Roman author Plutarch wrote a book called How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. I know some people who've read that book, I think. (laughs) In fact, Caesar Augustus wrote an account of his own exploits called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus, and he had it distributed throughout the empire on bronze tablets, very subtle. (laughs) But that's what kings are supposed to do, right? Until King Jesus comes along and he's humble in heart. A poor rabbi from Nazareth never wrote a book called The Achievements of the Divine Carpenter. He never wore a fancy toga. In fact, we're gonna see that he takes his robe off to serve. And when the Son of God comes to the world, he voluntarily inserts himself on the bottom rung of the social order. He came to be crucified, and crucifixion is the death of a slave. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. No self-promotion. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The nature of a servant. Servanthood is the heart of our king and his kingdom. It's not the heart of the kingdoms of the world. You've heard that kingdom's message. The world says, blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves. Blessed are the aggressive. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the popular, for they shall inherit fame. Blessed are the influencers, for theirs is the kingdom of self-promotion. But King Jesus, humble King Jesus, comes along and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey and the crowds gather and they're waving their palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. 
They're crowning Jesus as their king, and they expected that he would come as a king to do what kings do, a king who would fight and brag and smash and purge his way all the way to the tippy-top spot until he's in control. And that's probably what his disciples thought too. His disciples probably thought that at some point the odds were good that in following Jesus, they would be asked to pick up a sword. And here in John chapter 13, they're handed a towel instead. We're back now here in the upper room. And the meal is still going on. The smell is, well, you can probably imagine what the smell is. 13 guys crowded around a table with their shoes off after what they've been walking in. <laughs> it's dirty, but still, still, nobody's volunteered. They're not gonna budge. Not me. Nope, nope, I'm not gonna stoop that low. I'm nobody's servant. Somebody else can do that. But then Jesus gets up ever so quietly, maybe while the argument is even still raging, and everything about this scene is shocking to us, isn't it? I mean, I, I want to just grab the disciples by the ears and shake them and say, don't you know who this is? That's the second member of the Trinity right there. This is the God who in eternity past filled the universe with his presence and then spoke 10,000 galaxies into existence and crafted Saturn's rings and, and with one flick of his finger could send our solar system spinning off into space. Don't you know who this is? This is the promised one, the deliverer, the Messiah, and in 12 hours he's going to be hanging on a cross for you. Don't you know who this is? That's the Son of God over there. And yet while the argument rages... Humble King Jesus gets off, gets up, and, and he takes off his robe, and he clothes himself in a towel, the dress of a servant. And he goes over, and he takes the pitcher, and he pours it in the basin, and this is amazing, but it is true. Jesus goes around, and he washes the grimy toes of Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and Andrew Judas. I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room when he got done. Let's read the words straight from John. He was there. He saw the whole thing. Verses 2 through 15. It says that the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
You see, this is not just the beautiful story of Jesus' humility and servanthood. This is a call to you and to me to do what Jesus has done, to serve as Jesus has served. But before we get too specific about what that looks like, we gotta see that first, this text give us two, gives us two foundations for servanthood. And the first is this. First, we serve from security. We serve from security. Notice what John said here in verses three and four. He said that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the table. John's saying that Jesus derived all of his identity, all of his purpose, all of his significance and value from God the Father, and he was so secure in who God the Father said he was and what God the Father had called him to do that then he was free to be a servant to the people around him. And the same thing is true for us. That when we are so deeply at rest, knowing that we are loved by God, knowing that God sending his son to die on the cross for us is the eternal proof that he loves us. When we find our greatest significance in the fact that God has accepted us through Jesus Christ into his family, when we find our greatest purpose in God's will for our lives, when we are so at rest and secure in who he says we are, then that frees us up. We don't need the status games of the world. We don't need to play the self-promotion stuff to prop up our own identities and make ourselves feel good about ourselves anymore. We don't need to use other people to make us feel better. No, no, no. We are then freed to serve other people, to humble ourselves, and to be a servant as Jesus was to us. And that means that it also doesn't matter whether they love us in response or reject us in response. Jesus got both in this room. But it's okay, because we serve from security. Secondly, we serve for Jesus. Jesus is calling you to serve people who don't deserve it because he deserves it. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus took off the robes of eternity and he wrapped himself in human flesh and he came and he went all the way to the cross for you and for me when we did not deserve it. And now we owe him a debt of love that we could never, ever repay. And one of the ways we're called to show our gratitude to Jesus is by serving the people that Jesus places around us. This means that your spouse is the appointed agent in your life to receive what you owe to Jesus. This means that that your your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your boss, your neighbors, your in-laws, did I go there? Yeah, I just went there. All of those people have been placed in your life to receive what you owe to Jesus Christ. That you owe him a debt of love so great that you are called to express it in servanthood to the people around you. And because you're serving for Jesus, it doesn't matter if your service goes unseen or unnoticed or if people take advantage of your service or if they are ungrateful for it because you're not serving to receive the praise of men or for self-promotion. You are serving from security for Jesus. Now, throughout this sermon, I've not gotten very specific yet about how I think you should live and what this means for how it looks like for you to be a servant. That's because I think you already see it. I think you can see it in the corner of the room, somewhere in your life. There's a basin and a towel with your name on it. Just waiting for you to pick it up. As I wrote this sermon, I prayed for God to give me opportunities to serve, and he did, and they were almost always inconvenient. (laughs) And that's what foot washing is. And I'm confident that if you ask the Lord and you have the humility to listen, he will show you where and who and how to serve. I don't know what it'll be for you, Maybe he'll call you to do an inglorious job. 
Today is the holiday where we celebrate the mother of all inglorious jobs, right? Like motherhood is inglorious. Mothers, we thank you for all the thousands of diapers you have changed and the millions of loads of laundry and dishes that you washed. And maybe if you're a mom or if you're, if you're in some kind of a service role to the people around you, you might wonder as you're doing the mundane tasks day in and day out, like, is this really worth it? As you're pushing the vacuum or sweeping the floor for the fourth time that day or shuttling kids around to practice or helping with homework or making a meal for a neighbor, like, is this all there is? Is this it? Yeah, we are living in a kingdom where Jesus calls us to do these little deeds with great love in his name as an expression of our gratitude for him. That's the kingdom we're living in, a kingdom of servanthood. And some of you, some of you in the circles you run in, you are at the top of the table. You are the person with honor and authority. That's okay. That's a good thing. God might've put you there. Just know that the higher you are on the ladder, the greater the call to serve. My dad's the president of a college. It's a fairly big job, and he's fairly well-known in some circles. You know, but the thing I love about my dad is that nothing is beneath him. And one of my clearest childhood memories is one day, dad looked out the window, and he saw that our neighbor's trash had just blown over, or some dogs had gotten into it or something. It was just like all over the road, diapers, the whole nine yard, just a mess. And he said, all right, kids, let's pretend to be secret agents. Let's see if we can all go out there and pick up the trash with nobody seeing us. I've heard my dad preach hundreds of sermons And that might've been the loudest one. So if you have authority, this is what Jesus tells you to do with it. Mark chapter 10, he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe Jesus is calling you to do an inglorious task. Maybe, though, he's calling you to love a difficult person. I've heard it said before that you only love God as much as the person you love the least. I don't know about you, but that was convicting for me. Maybe God is gonna call you to love a difficult person because part of being the church means that we are around difficult people that we are forced to love day in, day out, week in, week out. This is a good thing. This is what it means to follow Jesus. I've heard it said before, oh, to to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, now that's a different story. (laughs) Perhaps even in this room, there's a person you've ignored or a person who annoys you or a person you might just think is beneath you. Maybe Jesus is calling you to love them, to be interruptible by them, to serve them, to be a good listener to them. If Jesus can wash Judas's feet, I think you can love that person too. And as we do that, here's what Jesus promises to us in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Not by our opinions or our church attendance or our bumper stickers or our t-shirts, but if you love one another, it's waiting for you over there in the corner, friend. A basin and a towel with your name on it. And the ironic thing is that as we work our way down the table, serving as Jesus did, that's when people will know we belong to the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son. It is that act of great love and service that gives us the confidence and the security of knowing that we're accepted by you and that frees us then to serve other people without competition. Jesus, we thank you for your servanthood. Your servanthood has saved us. You said to Peter that unless you washed him, he would have no part with you and you have washed us. That as we were washed in the waters of baptism, as we're gonna get to see Colin be here in a little bit, 
We've been covered by your blood as we've put your, our faith in you. That you went all the way to the cross, taking the very nature of a servant. You are such a humble king. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. But your servanthood doesn't just save us, Lord. It also calls us. So for each of us, I ask that you'd show us who and how and when and where you'd like us to serve, to be a servant as you have been to us. And our prayer is that as we do, people would see you in us. That we would become a church of dirty towels and a community of clean feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.